we got a few minutes for questions. Will the wheat and tares refer to this too? Does the parable of the wheat and the tares? I don't. You come back here. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Just uh, not pulling up the tares, not separating them, waiting for the harvest, and the harvesters living in a culture that's got wheat and tares together, not executing the tares. Uh, I would say it. It probably could. Uh, I hesitate ever to use parables to establish points of theology, uh, but there's no there's no question that that the idea that we can't see the hearts of men is involved in that. No question about that. And I think if all of us, if we're honest, we go back through our own ministry. There's people that we were absolutely sure were Christians, and today we're sure they're not Christians, and others that that we we were positive they weren't. And yet, in the end, they're going to prove that they were. We simply can't see the hearts of people. I think it was Newton who said, if by the grace of God I make it to heaven, there'll be three things that shock me. One is there's going to be a lot of people there I never expected to see. And there's going to be a lot of people I thought would be there who won't be there. And he said, the thing that amazed me the most is that I'm there. <laughs> and I, I think that there's certainly that warning in the New Testament. And that doesn't mean that we can't discipline somebody out of a congregation. That doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that if we're going to err, let's always err in the sight of grace. Always. In our own personal life and in our relationship with other people. Any other questions? Yes. John, how much do you uh, uh, think that some of this is attributed to the fact that there's a, a lack of trust in the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit. I mean, I, I seem to see a lot of uh, ministers that are very concerned about uh, how their, their people act. And uh, it almost seems sometimes that there is a real lack of trust in, in God's ability to, to change hearts. I mean, uh, would that be part of it, do you think? I think that's the heart of it. That's not a part of it. I think that's the heart of it. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on Romans chapter 7, it's uh, the only book ever that I've read three times except Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, most books I don't read twice. A lot of them I don't even finish. But that one I read three times because he's my patron saint. <laughs> he did not persuade me on his view in the end, but the first 14 verses of, of that is one of the finest things that I've ever read. And in that he makes the statement, several times, that not only can you not be not justified by the law, you can't be sanctified by the law. And then he goes on to say, I will go so far as to say that the law is the greatest hindrance to sanctification that there is. And he says that over and over again. And I think he's dead right. And his, his whole thing is that the moment we bring the law into either justification or sanctification, we've lost the power of the grace of God. Uh, the, grace has three aspects to it. The first aspect is grace is something that's in the heart of God. And, and he chose us, he elected us, and grace is almost synonymous with election in that sense. And it's something in the heart of God that chose us. 
And, and that's the element of grace that the Puritans saw so clear. But there's also an element of grace where grace is also a power that flows from God into the heart of a Christian. And when, when Paul speaks in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where grace enabled him, he can't mean that this is something in God, but something that comes from God. And so the power that comes from God, the grace that comes from God, is really synonymous almost with the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the, it is this power of grace that teaches and overcomes. And that's the thing that was lost. And that power to sanctify was taken away from grace and turned over to law. So often in Puritan theology and today the same thing. Because people are really afraid of grace. And, and that's exactly why when Paul writes that tremendous statement in Romans 5, where, grace, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's just not, here's a whole lot of sin, here's a whole lot more grace. He's talking there also about power. Grace abounded to deal with sin, not just judicially, but also powerfully. And that's why Paul raises the question, shall we sin that grace may abound? And Lloyd-Jones says this, the basic premise of a legalist is that he sincerely with all of his heart believes that the preaching of the law is the only way to guarantee holy living. And boy, you'll see this over and over again in quotations. If you say to the gallows with Moses, you are also saying to the gallows with all holiness. That's Thomas Bolton. Because they sincerely believed with all of their hearts, and they, they weren't being hypocrites, they believed that, that, that the law pushes you to Christ to be justified, and Christ will take you by the hand and lead you back to Moses to be sanctified. And that was what I heard. I heard that incantation over and over again. And that's where Bunyan helped me so much in that one illustration of the interpreter's house, where the man came in and with the broom and he stirred up the dust and everybody choked, and then the maid came in and sprinkled the room and cleaned it with ease. And Bunyan says, now that first man is Moses with the broom. That's the law. And all it does is stir up dust. It can't clean the room. And that maid, that's the gospel. And the gospel can clean the room. And everybody understands that. The covenant theologians understand that. The Puritans understood that. However, what they then do is they want to give that man the broom back to keep the house clean. And see, Moses, I mean, Bunyan is not saying that man with the broom can't clean the house. He's saying the man with the broom can't deal with the dirt, period. And another of his illustrations where you remember he was going up the hill and the guy came at him with a club, beat him to death, and he said, give me mercy. I don't know how to show mercy. Beat him again. And then the man came by with holes in his hands and made him quit. And faithful says, well, I'll tell you who that was. <laughs> and then he described that experience. He says, and that man was Moses, and he doesn't know how to show mercy because that's the job that God gave him to be. And he says, that second man was Jesus. And see, what Bunyan was showing is if you allow the, the law in your conscience, you will always lose. 
If you go one-on-one -on -one with the law, you will always lose because the law rightly demands perfection and can't bless anything but that. It can't bless anything but perfection, and you can't give perfection. That's why you can't allow the law in your conscience. You have to have the law over here in your thoughts of approaching God. Totally. Or else you'll always feel guilty. Because you cannot render to that law the kind of a life that it demands and deserves. And therefore you cannot come under it and go one-on-one -on -one with it because you can't meet its demands. You can't render it the perfection that it justly deserves. And that's what Bunyan is showing in The Man with the Club, the law in the conscience. No, no. Over here as a teacher, fine. As my eyes, fine. But never in my conscience. That's what I think what Romans is talking about when it talks about the accusing and excusing. And that's what the law does. It can accuse, it can excuse, and has a perfect standard upon which it can accuse and excuse. The only trouble is it always accuses anything except absolute perfection, and we can't render that, therefore we cannot allow it to be our accuser and excuser. We have to say, no, 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 we're done with that. Because one has fulfilled it and rendered it to, it to righteousness that it deserves. Anybody else have a question? Yes, David from Canada. Um, I went to a seminary actually that taught covenantal theology and they said a sermon outline should go, you should preach the law, then you should preach grace, and then you have to end up with the law. Um, just what you were saying, mm -hmm. that's what I was taught. Um, my question is, they use the example where I went to seminary about the fence around their roof and their idea of fulfillment in the New Testament is putting a fence around a swimming pool. Um, that was how they, they, they would teach that law in, in this era. Could you comment on that and, and tell how your approach differs? No, I would say the same thing. I would say that, that you do not throw out the Old Testament scriptures or the whole economy of Israel. If you're going to study politics, if you're going to study uh, sociology, if you're going to study poverty situation, man, read the Old Testament. Just don't make it a law. I mean, don't, don't go back here and say, this is a law, and I'm going to put this law in the hands of the magistrate. But this is what I meant when I said learning something. I mean, not just putting the roof, putting the, the wall around the roof. And the, that just wasn't something that was thrown in there ceremonial. That, that makes good sense, and that's a good principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. And there's nothing wrong with us saying we learn from that. And, and we, can, we can build our whole lifestyle in many ways from principles we find in the nation of Israel. But we don't set up a theocracy, whether it's in the church or whether it's in the civil government. That's all we're saying. See, we, we, we learn principles. And, and we should look at those things and say, there was a principle there or God wouldn't have done it. That's a classic illustration. Yeah. And that's the one that's used in, in most theonomic arguments as well. Uh, in Romans 13, we read uh, that the Christian is subject under the magistrate, should be. And we also read that the magistrate 
is ordained by God. Uh, could you tell us what the law of the magistrate should be or where they get their law that the Christian is also under? Would anybody else like to answer that question? <laughs> because that's the $64 question. And, and we are, we are taunted, yeah, come on up, David. We, we are often taunted, where do you get the rules to set up your civil government? And, and really, the, the Christian church, as I understand the church in the New Testament scriptures, we're not called upon to set up, set up a civil government. We're in the world and not of the world. And the kingdom that we're part of, we are not trying to turn this world into that kingdom legislatively. The magistrate should have his conscience wed to scriptures. But there's no way that we are authorized or commanded in the scriptures to use that magistrate and his authority to force the conscience of other people. In other words, if, if, if we were on the board, the zoning board, and the Jehovah Witness applied for a building permit, could we, in good conscience before God, turn that down purely on the basis that he was a Jehovah Witness? Well, you see, if we're in any way, shape, or form taking these principles back here and making them the law and saying that magistrate has to govern by those laws, then there'd be no question. But if we follow that, and I say this as sincerely as can be, if we follow that, and turn it over to the magistrate on the basis of covenant theology, it isn't very long before you and I are dead. Because there's nobody that they would have hated as much as the rebaptizers. The last meaningful conversation I had with my brother Ernest, and by the way, uh, let me say very quickly, my brother Ernest is, is one of the greatest Christians I've ever met. And I say that as sincerely as I know how. And I owe my soul from a human point of view to my brother Ernest, and I love him very dearly. We differ theologically. He doesn't understand New Covenant theology, but he's still the greatest Christian that I ever met. And I remember talking to him, and, and I said, do you really know where we disagree? And he said, well, you tell me where you think we disagree. And I said, well, if Ian Murray got in charge of the government, I don't think he would shoot us Baptists. And he said, I agree with that. But I said, I'm not sure whether his grandchildren would. If they were consistent and carried out what they believed, they would wind up in New England theonomy. He says, well, we, we may agree with that. But he said, where do we disagree? I say, we disagree on this. When they had us at the stake and were ready to light the fire, I would know why, and you wouldn't. <laughs> and I think that that's the case. The, the, the theonomist... And, and the Presbyterian brethren that I love very dearly, if they got in control of the government and would rule this nation with the Westminster Confession of Faith, we Baptists would be in prison. And if we wouldn't, they wouldn't be honest with their own conscience. They would have to use the sword, the magistrate, because what we're saying, especially about the commandments, especially about the Sabbath, we are really wicked people, if they're consistent with their presuppositions. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, David, help me. It seems that Romans 13 is very suggestive about how, how we can have some idea of a new covenant uh, perspective on civil government. Uh, 
to me, if we look at Romans 13 clearly, when Paul says the magistrate doesn't hold the sword in vain, he's the rewarder of those that do good, uh, punisher of those who do evil, Paul is speaking about what government? Obviously the Roman in this case. The Roman government did not have any commandments or uh, statutes regarding the first table of the law. It seems to me if the theonomist is correct, the theonomist has to kill Paul because Paul has overthrown completely any basis for saying that in this era, in this dispensation or this new covenant period, that there's a basis for theonomy. He's overthrown that by saying that the Roman government is ordained by God. If the mm. theonomist is correct, Romans 13 shouldn't be in the Bible because Paul was saying that God has put his stamp on something that doesn't want to back up what they're pressing for. That is, idolaters should be killed. Nero was an idolater. And uh, this seems to be something that's also found in the book of Acts. Dr. Luke, some believe, was writing a Roman official. Most excellent Theophilus, Cratiste, was used in the book of Acts to speak to a Roman official in Paul's uh, testimony. And it seems Dr. Luke commends the governors of Rome or the government officials of Rome when he speaks in Acts 18 about the fact that uh, Paul was taken before the magistrate or taken before Gallio by the Jews. And uh, this was his response uh, when Paul was about to defend himself, Acts 18, 14. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your laws, look ye to it, for I will be no judge of such matters. If we hear Dr. Luke rightly, I believe he's saying to Theophilus, in this age, government isn't given the responsibility to judge between matters of religion and conscience. Amen. And the same thing is found over in Acts 26 when Paul has made his defense before Agrippa. And, uh, excuse me, yes, 26. And uh, after Paul's address... And he presses Agrippa, verses 31 and 32 in the chapter. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. The idea being, our provenance in government is not matters of religion, matters of conscience. And I think if we hear the book of Acts and hear Romans and even 1 Peter 2, Peter's saying, we are not theonomists. We're not pressing for in this present age. And it ties in with the question Harry asked about Matthew 13. The paradigm in this period now of the kingdom of heaven is the jury's out as far as judgment goes in the field, the world, until the consummation. Within the church, there's a different marching order, mm -hmm. church discipline. But again, that goes back to spiritual, not to the sword. Yeah. So I think, I think we have some new covenant uh, scripture that will really address so some of these things. They make their own laws I think there is, there is that moral code we have. But when it comes to what the new covenant affirms concerning civil authority, it doesn't relate that moral code in areas of religion and conscience as far as what, what religion I choose to follow and so forth. It would relate it, obviously. Did the Roman government punish murder? Absolutely. 
Paul commends that in Romans 13. Did they forbid idolatry? No, they didn't. And yet Paul still commends that government. Seems to me that that destroys the foundation of the theonomist who wants to press. We must impose all of Moses' law on all of the nations in this age. Uh, the book, uh, But I Say Unto You, deals somewhat with this. The Sermon on the Mount is, is never given to the magistrate to rule. I wouldn't want to live in a society where the magistrate used the Sermon on the Mount to make his decision because the crooks would have the law on their side. I'm glad for a law that is based on righteousness and justice in a society that's sinful. And the rules for the church and the Christian to live under grace and be motivated, motivated and exercised by grace means that he has commandments laid upon him by his Lord that were really unlawful under the law of Moses. And you must see this distinction between what is the concept of the world and what governs the world and the magistrate and the church of Jesus Christ and its rule over its own members and its relationship with each other. Okay, we are dismissed.